This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin. Malenkov. NASA. 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 Hello again, and welcome to episode 30 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today, Tom? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Egyptian President Nasser. Yeah, and this is a bit of a curveball for us, Katie. We talk (laughs) in advance these episodes. Some of them our eyes light up. And sometimes our brains are filled with facts from before. I think for both of us, this is fresh territory. It's fresh territory. My eyes have glazed over a little bit with stupidity and ignorance because I don't even have a Mad Magazine parody <laughs> uh, spoof information of President Nasser. And I have no 1980s pop songs apart from Billy Joel that reference him. So we're lost here. Thankfully, Katie... There is a man to guide us towards the light. That is Tarek Osman, author, broadcaster, expert in the history, politics and economics of the Arab world. Welcome, Tarek. Oh, I I recognize my name, but not the description. So thank you very much (laughs) for the lovely words. So much we want to know about our subject today. But I wanted to start off to try and put Nassar in some sort of context. So the Egypt that he's growing up in, what sort of country, what sort of society is it? It's full of contradictions, actually, uh, Tom. He was born in 1918, uh, if I remember correctly. So his formative years were in the 30s, 40s. He came from, from southern Egypt, actually, which is interesting. It's the, the most conservative, the most inward-looking part of the country, and continues to be, by the way. But he grew up in Alexandria. And in that period, 1930s, 1940s, Alexandria is a very cosmopolitan place, a genuine Mediterranean port, if you'd like. Lots of Levantines, Armenians, Jews, uh, Greeks, Italians, lots of languages being spoken, very liberal, uh, outward-looking society. So, so quite an interesting, actually, mix where he came from and the city he grew up in. And more or less the same reflects Egypt at the time. Economically, also, it was quite interesting in terms of the contradictions. So the Egyptian state was, was actually relatively rich at the time. The Egyptian elite was very rich, actually, by international standards. The middle class was quite affluent, but the rich were tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. The middle class was very small percentage of the population. And the vast majority of the people were farmers, peasants, and substantial percentage of them were poor. So Nasser is going to fundamentally transform this country, Tarek, and he's going to fundamentally transform the whole of the Middle East, though, what it means to be an Arab, and he's going to change global politics as well. Where does that revolutionary spark come from when he's a young man? It's really difficult to, to say because if you look at his life when he was growing up in Alexandria and up to joining the army, so he went to the military academy, there's not really much that would make you pose and think, that this man is is destined to great things. But then two things happened in his life that probably were were momentous, probably were very interesting and important episodes. The first 
was that he was drafted basically into the 1948 war between a number of Arab countries, including Egypt and the, at the time, nascent state of Israel. So he did fight. And of course, for a young man, that, that is a, a transformative experience. You fight, but then importantly, you lose. And the second episode probably worth reflecting upon happened in the early 1950s, which is usually referred to as the burning of Cairo. And until today, you'll find different narratives on what actually happened. But the important point is the result. This glamorous city, very cosmopolitan, certainly the capital of the Middle East at the time, large sections of it was set on fire, and the authority looks at it and is, is powerless, is doing nothing. And the message that this young man is that not just we are losing fights, but even internally, our society is burning and the authority can do nothing. And I think these two episodes set him on a determined path to completely overhaul the structure that was there. So I can see that uh, he definitely had his motivation. But I'm curious, Tarek, what were the qualities that made him a leader? What was he like as a man? People who, who spent a lot of time with him, and, and two of them are people I was lucky enough in their old age to interview at length, said that he was relatively a quiet man. He was very famous for his stare. So he would stare at you with his eyes and everybody would tell you that as if he is reading your thoughts, Katie. So more or less a silent man. He was very well read, very well read, at least by the standards of the time. Apparently he was fascinated by the concept of strategy. Apparently he was very fascinated by the writings of Winston Churchill. And if there's one thing, I know that you want me to shut up, but if there's one thing that I find fascinating about Nasser, and I think can encapsulate his positioning, is he is the very first Egyptian to rule Egypt since Alexander the Great invaded Egypt 2,000 years before. The very first Egyptian. So you can imagine how this man, with this physical quality, with this charisma, with with this rhetoric and with this command over the people, how the people will perceive him. Does the revolution happen if he's not there, Tarek? No, no doubt not. Absolutely not. It's his creation. I'm curious about the, um, the organization that he was a part of that got the revolution off the ground, the Association of Free Officers. Who were they? What was, uh, what was their big idea? What were their goals? The big idea was to get rid of King Farouk, who was the monarch of Egypt, the last, effectively, the last monarch of this dynasty that has been on the throne for 150 years, and to negotiate with the British to leave Egypt. These are the two goals, if you'd like, that these free officers had in mind. Who are they? A number of young men, all of them in their early 30s, more or less. All of them are officers, obviously. And a number of them came from uh, socialist backgrounds. I think two or three have uh, dipped their toes with communist groups in Egypt in the late 1940s. I think a couple of them also had some connections to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. But you cannot really think of them as a party or even as an ideologically coherent group. They are disgruntled officers. All of them fought in this 1948 war. All of them witnessed and felt the defeat 
all of them felt that the salvation of Egypt is to get rid of the king and the political structure that they saw as uh, corrupt. And also note this social inequality I try to highlight uh, at the beginning of our chat, uh, Katie and Tom, that there is a huge disconnect between the elite and the upper middle class of Cairo and Alexandria, not just economically, but also culturally, and the rest of the country. So there was this idea of it's a revolution for the people. How did the coup actually go down? It's quite a fascinating uh, story, I think, because within 12 hours, more or less, certainly less than 24 hours, the oldest monarchy in the Middle East at that time, uh, 150 years on the throne, very established, again, Cairo, the cultural capital of the Middle East, artistic capital of the Middle East, you have a huge British presence, not in Cairo at the time, but in the Suez Canal, arguably very much supportive of the monarchy. And yet, again, within 12 to 24 hours, a very small band of officers managed to take control of the headquarters of the army, take control of the radio, there was no television at the time, of the radio stations, siege the royal palace in Alexandria, where the king was at the time. It's July, so Egypt is very hot. Um, and basically, you had a young officer. His name is Anwar Sadat, who later became a president of Egypt and a very important figure in international politics in the 70s, gives a speech on radio, say that we, in we, the Egyptian army, in the name of the people, uh, are taking hold of the country to get rid of corruption. And, and very peacefully, very important, very peacefully, they basically take control. What's the reaction across the Arab world and across the wider world, Tariq, when this revolution happens? Across the Arab world, it's very important reaction because it is not the very first movement of the army or coup d'etat at the time. Syria witnessed one few years before, so it's not the first time it happens. But when it happens in Egypt, again, given the positioning of the royal family in Egypt, given the weight and the gravitas of Egypt at the time, then it's... Tremendous. It's a huge watershed, actually, in Arab politics. And, of course, it's a huge warning to, to the Arab monarchical regimes, whether in, in Jordan, in Iraq at the time, Arabian Peninsula, in the Maghreb, in North Africa. It's a huge thing. Internationally, I'm not really sure there were many echoes at the time because Egypt internationally at the time did not really have a huge weight. It was, again, effectively a colony of the British Empire. It was a very beautiful uh, destination, culturally very important uh, uh, publishing center. By the way, this, this sound you're hearing is the call to prayer, which I'm sure you are familiar with. It's a first for the show, and I'm glad to hear it. Great. So there's, there's a first uh, that I establish here. So culturally, Egypt has some weight. It's the Hollywood of the East, as it was known, because of the Egyptian cinema was very well developed at the time. But politically, Egypt is not that important in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So I'm not particularly sure that what happens in Egypt here, the fall of the monarchy, the rise of this band of officers really resonated much. But those officers are determined to drive the British out of Egypt. 
Egypt is certainly the most important colony of Britain in the Middle East. It is where the Suez Canal is. So here you have a strategic point that the country in which the most important asset, economic and some would say political asset in the entire Middle East, again the Suez Canal, witnessed a change in the political structure whereby a new power is now in control and it is determined to drive Britain out. Now this obviously a watershed. In 1952, you do not see its consequences, but shortly after, you will see the consequences, obviously, with the Suez crisis. So, Tarek, we already know from your very evocative description, Nasser is very charismatic. He has that mesmerizing stare that seems to see into people's souls. What does he offer as a leader? Because people are gravitating towards him. They, they really naturally uh, surrender to him, it seems. Well, he offers a dream because he offers a vision as well. Arab nationalism, the idea, the idea that there's something uniting the peoples of the Arabian Peninsula, the Fertile Crescent, the Eastern Mediterranean, Egypt and North Africa together beyond the language, beyond Arabic and beyond uh, some shared cultural aspects. The idea that there's a political project uniting these peoples together was born a few decades earlier actually against the Ottoman Turks. So the idea that there's an Arab identity against the Ottoman identity was born in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But it never really gained a huge momentum. Nasser, by eliminating the oldest monarchy in the region, by standing up to Britain, which of course at the time was the superpower that has controlled this part of the world for many decades, and very shortly after, by challenging it in Suez, he personified, if you'd like, the dream of the rise of the Arab nation, and note the word nation, that supposedly all of those Arabs across this huge geography are united by identity, not just by language, by a political project, and that somehow the dream of one country even that will be united together to form a world power is starting to to be born in the imagination of a number of people. You call it a project, some people call it a dream, some people call it an illusion, but he gave not just a voice, he gave an image to Arab nationalism. Okay, we're going to leap out for a quick ad break, but we'll be right back. My name is Jimmy McLaughlin, and I used to advise the Prime Minister on business and entrepreneurship. Now I run a podcast called Jimmy's Jobs of the Future exploring the future of our economy with Britain's biggest entrepreneurs. Exam results do not have to define your future. I didn't get great results, and neither did our first guest, Ben Francis of Gymshark, who created a billion-dollar company at the age of 28. To hear how he did it, just search Jimmy's Jobs of the Future wherever you get your podcasts. Katie, we've got a what we might refer to as a canal in the room. Because Billy will take us to some marvellous places. Sometimes he takes us on return trips. And in the case of Nasser in Egypt, he takes us back to trouble in the Suez. 
later on. So this is slightly weird that we're talking about NASA and we won't be able to talk yet about his defining moment. No, that's kind of like uh, the biggest uh, song on his greatest hits album, Old Nasser, uh, the Suez Canal. But um, he does he does make a few other splashes. Um, although before he sort of claws his way to be the president of Egypt, Tarek, there is a little bit of a power struggle, I understand, with between the military and the Islam Brotherhood. You know, I would not really call it a struggle because the outcome of the confrontation, that struggle, all right, let's use the word, was 100% certain from the beginning that the military, the armed forces, is basically into a, a potential confrontation with any other political force in the country in the 19, early 1950s. It is a foregone conclusion, so of course. But ideologically, it is interesting because keep in mind that until the First World War, all of the Arab world, including Egypt, the entire Middle East, was part of the Ottoman Empire, which was an Islamic caliphate at the end of the day. So it was an Islamic state. But then, of course, before that, with the exposure to Europe throughout the 19th century, with the huge westernization of societies, including Egypt, what I'm trying to say, Katie and Tom here, is that you have lots of ideas that try to inspire societies, not just Egypt, across the Arab world, really in transition, really coming out of the Second World War, coming out of the fall of the Ottomans, and more importantly, coming out of British and French occupation, which really, really controlled that region and trying to figure out what will be their identity, their place in the world. There's a lot of nuance going on here, Tarek. However, there was an assassination attempt in 1954, so I would call that a little bit of a power struggle. Um, Nasser uh, managed to continue making a speech after eight shots were fired. Yes, absolutely, in a place called Manchia in, um, in Alexandria. What he says after that, stand up, my brothers, stand up, represent dignity. So words that he say, he use while shots are getting at him. So yes, you're absolutely right. There was a watershed moment in which there was an assassination attempt, though you'll find a number of historians who have different narratives around it. But that moment is important in the sense that right after it, Nasser goes directly after the Muslim Brotherhood, and within months, they are no longer a significant force in Egyptian politics. But the idea does not go away. Political Islam as an idea does not go away. There's a speech he makes at some point, Tarek, where he is referencing uh, demands that women should still wear the veil. And the extraordinary thing when you listen to that speech now is the laughter that greets the idea that Arabic women should wear a veil. It's quite striking now because he was, at heart, he was a secularist, wasn't he? Absolutely. And actually, it's, it's a fascinating one because he is recounting uh, a request that was made or put to him by somebody very prominent in the Muslim Brotherhood who says, Nasser is telling his audience, that this man tells me that we, the state, should impose or encourage, you have different interpretations here, women to put on the veil. And then he jokes Nasser and says, I told him that I'm surprised because your daughter is not wearing the veil. <laughs> Tell 
And he's making the whole thing as a joke because, of course, nobody expects the Egyptian society or women in Egyptian society to put on the veil. And then at that moment, somebody from the audience tells Nasser, ask him to put on the veil. <laughs> but the point you mentioned is absolutely correct. That if you, if you look at the outlook in Cairo, in Alexandria, you did not have the features of a veil of, uh, on the contrary. As I said, you had bars, you had very liberal cosmopolitan society, the vast majority of women, the vast, vast majority of women did not have their hair covered, did not have the veil, you did not have any of the features of Islamization that started to appear in the societies, not just Egypt, but across the Arab world, in the, and even Iran even, in the 1970s, 1980s. So when you're talking about Nasser's greatest hits, of course, his first big number one seems to be nationalizing the Suez Canal. And we are going to devote an entire episode to that. But another big uh, one on the Nasser hit parade is uh, his work industrializing the largely agrarian society in Egypt. So the Aswan Dam is a big hit. Can, uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. And, and uh, to take your analogy a step forward, there are lots of songs that many, many Egyptians still remember to this day, songs that were made to commemorate the process of building the, the high dam and how, how it was a symbol of standing up to the world and summoning the will of the Egyptian people. Oh, can you, can you sing us some of these songs? Do you know any lines off the top of your head? Oh, I mean, one of them is incredibly famous called Hekayit Shab, the story of a people. Uh, it's by the Frank Sinatra of the Arab world of the time. <laughs> His name is Abdel Halim Hafiz. I cannot sing it. I mean, if I sing it, you, you believe me, everybody will, will just completely abandon your show. Just croon a little line, Tarek. Croon a little line. It is the story of a nation that stood up to colonialism. And it goes on and on. Actually, it's written by a fascinating poet, by the way, a fascinating poet. poet. His name is Salah Jaheen. Anyway, back to, back to this, the Aswan Dam. It's, it's an incredibly important moment. Because again, remember that the Egyptian narrative is, is different than its mere industrialization. The Egyptian narrative and the Arab narrative here is that Egypt wanted, after the fall of the monarchy, after the, the birth of Arab nationalism, to start to use its resources. Now, what is the most important resource of Egypt? It's the Nile. Since the birth of Egypt, since Herodotus' time, the Greeks, as he said, Egypt is the gift of the Nile. So the Nile has always been rushing from Africa all the way to the Mediterranean. It has created Egypt and the agrarian life, but Egyptians have never controlled the flow of the Nile. And the idea has always been that you build dams to control the flow of the Nile. There was a small dam built in the early 20th century, but nothing on the scale and the vision of the high dam. And the idea was that we will finally take control of the most important asset. Not just this will create electricity, which of course is the fuel of industrialization, but there's even a symbolic point here that we take control, we take hold of the Nile that gave birth to Egypt. But then in the Arab narrative, 
the international powers, Britain and the United States, do not give the funding. They stop the World Bank from funding it. So what is the Egyptian response? You now nationalize the Suez Canal so that you have funding. He's not an old man when he's in power, Tarek, as he comes to power in his mid-30s. And he's only 52 when he dies. But he's living, not a lifestyle, but his, his way of coping with all the stresses and the, the pressures of his job. He's a chain smoker, isn't he? He has two heart attacks. And then in 1970, he has the heart attack that kills him. What was the reaction like when he dies? What was the reaction like both in Egypt and across the Arab world? The second largest funeral in the 20th century in the Arab world, the first being that of Umm Kulthum, the diva of Arab music, and his is the second, so by many estimates about six, six point something million people pour to the streets. You have incredible scenes of, of uh, sadness. You have Nizar Qabbani, who is arguably the most famous uh, poet in the Arab world in the second half of the 20th century, writing a, nov- a poem about the death of the Arab Messiah. So this is the image that you have of, of this man. You're absolutely right. He was a chain smoker. He was a workaholic, actually. Uh, he insisted, which is quite interesting, he insisted on listening himself to the radio stations that were attacking him. A man with very few hobbies. His only, his only hobby was photography, but very occasionally. His only entertainment was to watch uh, a film. Uh, apparently, he was a fan of West, American Westerner, Westerner films once every week or so. But apart from that, a man devoted to his work. Uh, yes, you're right, got two heart attacks. But keep in mind that this is a man who was broken in June 1967 after his defeat in front of Israel. So that was uh, the Six-Day War that happened in 1967, which was absolutely humiliating for Nasser, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's also many people would argue that was really the end of Nasser. So he died in September 1970. But many people would say, I would tell you, he actually died politically at least, in June 1967. And especially since Israel was seen as so tiny as well. But uh, his followers refused to let him resign. He was trying to, maybe he was just paying lip service to wanting to resign. But, um, you know, he still had the backing of his public. And in fact, at his funeral, uh, apparently Gaddafi of Libya fainted from emotional distress, not once, but twice. King Hussein and Arafat cried openly. So it seems that uh, his influence uh, continued as well. First of all, I have no idea about whether Qaddafi uh, fainted twice. That is new to me. I like this, actually. Thank you. You told me something <laughs> new. I've n- never heard that. Look, his, his legacy is, is fascinating because you can look at his legacy, as many of his detractors say, and say, look, his legacy is effectively military rule. His legacy is effectively strong man. His legacy is effectively no democracy. His legacy is effectively the one-man show. And of course, we've had loads of those. The other narrative about the legacy is one that continues to believe in him. It's difficult to find wide narrative of that nature concerning any of those people who modeled, or leaders, or dictators, who modeled themselves on him. So there is a distinct difference in the Arab psyche 
between him and all of those others who try to imitate him. But again, if you look from a very objective point of view, a lot of his legacy, or a lot of, of points in his legacy, were highly problematic. And I think a lot of them actually set the political scene in different parts of the Arab world for many problems, some would say disasters to come. It sounds like for all his politics and for all the, the great changes that he he made and wrought in society, Tariq, sounds like he also had the common touch, that maybe that was the secret for his popularity with the ordinary people in Egypt, that despite the fact that he is leader of their country and has all this power, they always feel that he's still one of them. I'll tell you a story that I was witness to, actually, Tom, 15, maybe more, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I'm a huge fan of a certain local juice that comes out of southern Egypt. Relatively rare to find. And I found this place, so I stopped and I told the guy, can I have a, a cup? It's like a beer, more or less. It's not alcoholic, but like a, like a pint. So it takes time for the guy to prepare it for you. And then I noticed, I mean, the guy is, at the time, is probably 40 years old. So he certainly did not really, he's not from the generation that lived Nasser's time. He probably was born at the time, yes. But anyway, I see in the shop a small photo of Nasser, but right above the daily calendar. So, the, so I actually ask him, why do you have a photo of Nasser? But he says, but why? He's one of us. Exactly, without thinking, just he, he blurbs it out. He's one of us. That sentiment, certainly prevalence in different parts of, of Egypt and even beyond Egypt. And the narrative here, the idea, the image is that he was not corrupt. He did not got money out of the country and put it into a Swiss account and, and bought a, a villa in the, uh, the Cotswold or, or a three-bedroom flat in Knightsbridge. Or, he didn't do that. He was a man of the people who was clean, if you'd like. His people, his family lived in Egypt like us, kind of. And one final point, I don't know whether we're still recording or not, but actually it might be of interest for you to, to watch it. It's literally four minutes clip, and you will find it translated into English on YouTube, of a four minutes clip from a film called Nasser 56. This older woman, very old woman, comes where completely in, in black. She insists to meet on meeting him. And he's like, okay, fine, all right. And the woman enters and she tells him, I'm following you. I know that you're super busy. And then she puts in front of him um, a robe. And it's very old and you can see spots of blood on it. And she tells him, this is the robe of my great grandfather. And he, we were told one generation after another that he was taken to the border with the Levantines to dig a canal. Later on, we got to know that it is the Suez Canal. And he died. He never came back. And we could not exact revenge on those who killed him. And we could not go to the government. There was nobody to listen to us. And we could not go to anybody. Nobody could get us our right. But then I heard you on the radio. And she's referring to his speech when he nationalizes the Suez Canal Company. And she said, oh my, Nasser has brought us our right. Nasser has took revenge of what happened to my grandfather 
it might sound weird, might sound crony, it might sound crazy, it might sound even bloody, but you have no idea the impact of this scene. I did a BBC documentary called The Making of the Modern Arab World, and in the second episode on it, which was on Arab nationalism, I played that scene. And with me, there was a couple of Arab journalists of a certain age, both of them started to shed tears when I played that four or five minutes clip. It just shows you the positioning, again, in the psyche of how this man was perceived, not just as a dream of a political project, as standing up for lots of grievances, for injustices that the Arab mind has perceived, been accumulated on Arabs for decades, if not centuries. And Nasser comes, again, in the Arab psyche to stand up to all of those forces and, if you'd like, take our right back. Tarek Osman, thank you so much for bringing this man to life. He was all work, no play, except for the occasional Western movie, but he got to where he was going the way he wanted to do it. Thank you. Well, Katie, we arrived in our studio this morning knowing almost nothing about Nasser, and I feel now that we know a lot more. We know a ton about Nasser. Um, I'm a little disappointed that there weren't too many dirty little secrets that he had tucked away. I mean, he's kind of a straight arrow. That's disappointing for me because I like to schmaltz it up with uh, with the nastiness. He was not a nasty man. There's a lot to be said if you are a leader for working 18-hour days, but all work and no play, Katie. Well, it means you die young, as he did. Let that be a warning to anyone listening to this doing 18-hour days. Let your hair down, have the weekend off, and stop smoking. And maybe don't overthrow the whole government. Maybe don't do that either. (laughs) Do you think you would have liked a conversation with NASA, Katie? I often find myself wondering this with our with our big personalities. If if we were to go for a coffee with them, what would they be like? I don't even know if he drank coffee. Uh, that's ca- how square he was. Um, maybe we could have a, a movie night. Um, get some westerns in. Get some westerns in. You know, pass the popcorn. I don't think Nasser and I would have a lot in common. And uh, I respect Billy Joel for <laughs> shoehorning him. Uh, crowbarring him into the song, I feel like it's kind of a take-your-medicine topic, so I do feel smarter. Um, I feel like there's been nutrition, but it's not its not something that I care to revisit. Who does Billy treat us to next time out, Katie? Is there some light relief? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of light relief. We're talking about a Russian composer by the name of Prokofiev. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> the Apprentice. Bum, 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 bum. So we are singing, uh, between the two of us quite badly, the uh, one of the themes from Romeo and Juliet, which was one of his compositions. And you might recognize it from various television advertisements. But there's more to Prokofiev than just crass pop culture. Well, Katie, I'm looking forward to that one. If anyone would like a podcast in the interim, let me recommend Death of a Film Star. It's deep, immersive. It's the stories of all the people who told the stories we can't forget. Episodes about Marilyn Monroe, Robin Williams, Chadwick Boseman, 
a dark one, Katie, a very dark one about Sharon Tate and a dark one too about John Belushi. Just search for Death of a Film Star in all the usual podcast places. And while you're doing these sort of things, subscribe <laughs> to We Didn't Start the Fire. It really helps us. You can follow us on social media at Spread That Fire. Or if you like, you can go old school. You can email us, fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Maybe you fancy yourself as a guest on a future episode. Maybe someone you know would be the most amazing guest for a future episode. Look at the lyrics, have a little play around, see what happens. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.